Take Shani. <laughs> okay, so this is actually my personal debut in the worldwide podcast slash conglomerate, and I'm actually pretty excited. I mean, you got so much experience. Yeah, so thank you, and uh, it's great to have you here and, and to work with you on, uh, on the podcast. And I, I actually just showed up because you called me and said that you got a very interesting idea for a mini-series. You called yeah. it in the very uh, unoriginal name of the road for the first MVP. And all I knew about is that MVP is the most valuable player, which LeBron gets every time at the end of the NBA year. So you told me there is so much more about it. And I told you, you know what, if you're going to spend the time and educate me about the subject, maybe... Other people, other younger, maybe older people would have some benefits from it as well. Yeah, so I think if, if you look at how uh, technology evolved in the last couple of years, and especially with uh, AI coming into the scene, there is a very big democratization of tech uh, that's happening right now in, in the world. And I think that... Say 10 years ago, the Bible for startups was the lean startup, and this is what you're go going to do. You have like a very clear process. You need to develop your product for six to 12 months. Then you go to market, then you do like V1, then you go back and you get, you get feedback, and you go back and you work on V2, and you, and you iterate uh, this way, and you try to be lean because this is how, uh, like the lean thing was, let's not develop the full idea, but let's, let's spend just six months or let's spend just 12 months on developing it and not like three years. So that was the lean idea. And let's just take it back a bit and establish a baseline. What is an MVP and why should people use one? Yeah, so maybe I'll say a bit more about uh, what's my experience and how I got here. So basically I used to work uh, in an international health insurance company. I used to uh, build the uh, workflow automations for, for what we did there. And I also studied computer science. And I wasn't a really good programmer. I know how to read code. I don't know how to write code. So I'm like those girls that uh, watched Spanish and, <laughs> and, they can, and they can speak it. But they watch like Spanish TV or like Argentinian like, uh, soap operas. So they can speak it, but they don't know how to write it. So I'm, I'm one of those, I can read it, I understand what's going on, but I can't really write code. And I didn't really enjoy it. So I did like half of the computer science degree uh, in Israel. I realized I'm, I'm not really enjoying it. I'm not really enjoying the, the material. And, but I did learn the, the, let's say the foundational concepts of programming. And then I went on to work on building all those API workflows and custom automations for customers and you and you could see that that you're doing something very new to the you're bringing something very new because all those customers were used to be blocked by not having developers and not having the resources and not being able to build what they needed and so you would go out there and you would build a company like a workflow an internal workflow that would allow them to achieve a certain business process and this was great, and this was fine. And I think over the last year, there has been a big leap. So MVP is like the minimum viable 
product. This All is right. like the, the baseline of uh, the first version of, of what you're creating. And up until last year, I think, you could build those automation workflows and you could do that like for a single customer, but it was very difficult to build a strong product for, uh, for a, a number of users or for the public. And I think what has changed in the last year is that finally there is a way to build the product really fast and get to an MVP without having developers involved and you can skip those six to 12 months. I so what was actually needed back in, let's say, 2017, 18, 19, what was needed in terms of capital, in terms of development to achieve a technical MVP for a startup? So I can tell you that even today, to get to an MVP, to get to a point where you can actually uh, provide a product to the users, you would have to have, let's say, $100,000 or $200,000 spent on developing it. If you're working with a developer, you would have to work with a developer, you would have to learn how to work with developers, and which is not very intuitive because most developers are not business users. They know how to get you from point A to point B, but they can't really understand your vision, and it's very difficult for them to understand the business logic around, around what you're trying to do. So you would have to spend those $100,000, $200,000 to get you to a point where you have a functional product. And then you would be like, oh, this is not exactly what I need. And then you go for a second round of iterations and you spend another 100000 on revisions and fixing what's broken. And eventually you end up with a really big hole in your bank account and you don't necessarily have anything substantial to show for it. And I'm like leaving aside the time. This can take like a year or two years or something like that. This can People would have been spending like over two years just developing something that is still not up in the air? Yeah, people would spend a year or two years developing an MVP and the MVP would not be usable by anyone from their target audience. So what happened is that people started doing like, there was, there was a change or a move towards doing more user interviews and more, uh, I guess, you know, showing people like the wireframes and the designs and trying to get some feedback on that but you still could, and, and, and I think like what many people have done is like setting up a landing page and then running paid ads to that landing page and seeing if someone is willing to check out and like place the credit card info, but like, but then the page would give like an error. We don't have it, like, we couldn't like take your payment, but you had like, you validated that someone is willing to pay for, for what you created. So that was a good way to maybe do like validation at, I guess, like a couple of years ago. But I think, that, I think there was a big leap in the last year. I think the way no-code technologies are developing together with AI is enabling a lot of non-technical founders build their own products, and I call this like a lean and mean uh, MVP or startup, and they can go to market in, in a month. They can have a functional product within a month that they design or, or their UX designer builds, but they don't need a developer. They don't need to worry about code infrastructure, how it's built, how fast the servers are. They don't need to worry about any of those. It sounds 
to go to be true actually how do you do that so 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 first before i i say how you do that so i think i think this is like the major the major shift and i think a lot of people are not aware of the potential you have with no code tool tools to get you to market very fast and and obviously the the industry or the startup industry is dominated by tech people or uh, CTOs or developers essentially so it, it's very hard to let's say break through the break through and say okay there is a different way that you can do that there is there is another way that you can create your startup but I think people are starting to see it and I think over time people are uh, right now if you build a startup you want to have a startup you need to find a developer that's the first thing you have to do and working with a developer for for a non-technical founder is very difficult they don't know code they don't know how to speak with them they, they're not on the same I guess wavelength they're they're speaking one language and the developer is speaking another one and you're getting and then they're looking for a CTO to kind of like bridge the gap between the technical language and the business language but I think right now what's going to happen is that founders can start with a marketer and hire a marketer and not hire a developer and they can develop a very lean MVP in a matter of weeks and get it to market and I think the real challenge is going to be how do you get how do you go to market how do you market those uh, products that you're creating how you're iterating fast and getting feedback fast so and I think in, in a way it's going to do a lot of good because right now a lot you know there is like a statistics that one in ten startups fail but I think like the, st- the statistics are not referred to startups because if if you have to have a developer and you have to invest a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand before you can create some sort of an MVP then obviously one in ten is going to fail but if you're creating a process where you're trying an idea and if you don't if it doesn't work you try another one if it doesn't work you try another one and you iterate on every idea very fast then obviously your chances of survival and, and staying in the game are higher than if you spend two years on working on a single idea I used to work with a few startup companies and they would build like for example a chatbot for customer experience and they started in 2019 and and then like two years later they would figure out it's not a good market they are not able to sell it as much as they need so they pivot to another field to customer success they build another tool for a year then they go to market then they realize they it's it's not like the right tool for the for the community and then they shut down and every pivot is very like it's it's very it's very sad for the company it's like a failure it's like you're admitting a failure pivot like you spend two years on something and then you have to throw it in the garbage and you have to start over it's it's a very i guess difficult moment for the founders and i think if you spend less time on those ideas until they are validated you could pivot without feeling i guess guilty or without feeling bad about having to uh, to pivot so so before we're heading to the marketing section of the lean and mean startup Let's say I want to break it down um, something that I could relate to. Let's say I just started out. I have, um, let's say, a thousand bucks of capital, of starting capital. I have an idea. Let's say in, it's in the 
wellness industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to provide a first, very first MVP that people can actually get, get a subscription, a monthly subscription to. Okay. What should they do like from scratch right now? Okay. So do you want it to be like an app? I want it to be a mobile app that people could like download for $9.99 a month okay. and would make me super rich uh, six months from now. <laughs> so it's very difficult to, make a, to, to be super rich from $9.99. So just rich. Can't even, the even super j- part. Even just rich <laughs> is difficult, but, but it's a starting point. So, so let's say you have this idea for an app and you have $1,000. So you wouldn't get too far with $1,000 if you get a developer, even if you get like a good developer or like an okay developer would cost you like 50 or 60 dollars an hour so you could probably pay like 20 hours and that's not enough for them to build anything meaningful so what you need to do is you have to go through a couple of stages the first thing you have to do is create a wireframe like okay i have this idea how do i want it to look how does the login screen screen looks like how does the uh, dashboard looks like i open up the app what's happening all of that, this is something that you could create with, there are a lot of wireframing tools that are available for free, or even in your notebook. Like I would open up a notebook and I would start drawing, like this is how I want the dashboard to look, because you know how those screens look. You have like a thousand apps in your phone, right? A bit. <laughs> so maybe a thousand, maybe a hundred, not a thousand. But you know how those screens look like. So you could like draw on your notebook how you want those screens to look. Right? Yeah. So that's very, I guess, easy to get started. Again, we're just doing like version one, version 0.1. Like we're just getting something like working. And then you you do that, you go, I use Fiverr. I go to Fiverr, I find a UX UI designer. I pay them like about $50 per page. And let's say you have three or four pages, maybe five pages. So you spent... $250 on getting the Figma. What you need is a Figma design of your wireframes and, and you now have a functional design that you can give to a, any developer, either like a coding developer or a no-code developer or something like that. So I, it doesn't need to be perfect in terms of UI. It just need to demonstrate as well as I, can, as I can what I have in the back of my mind before a UI, UI designer starts working on exactly. it. Exactly. For for $1,000, we don't have the budget, I guess, to spend on a, on a designer right now. Uh, if you find someone good enough on Fiverr or Upwork, then you could probably get a bit more, you know, like user experience uh, baked into your designs. But again, what we want right now is to create something very fast so you can go to market and you can start seeing what users think. So maybe instead of getting a designer and paying for a UX designer, what you could do is set up hotjar.com. That's like a free tool that allows you to see everything people are doing in your app. And this way, after like a week or two weeks of people actually using your app, you have an idea of exactly what's working and exactly what's not working. So Hotjar is like a responsive screenshotter just for videos of how people interacted with my app? Exactly. So it creates like a heat map of, your, of the screen and then it shows you where people click, where people like rage click, like they click and nothing happens. So it's called like they click again. They click my again. mom is usually, why doesn't it work? 
So, so all of that is, uh, you, you can get from Hojar for free for the amount of traffic you probably have at the beginning. So, so we got the design, we got the wireframes, we got them designed. We're now $250 down. Okay, now we take those designs and we go to babel.io, okay? Now, Babel is a no-code uh, app builder, and what it allows you to do is essentially visual programming. And I think, I think we are going to, spe to speak a lot about the visual something concept, visual programming, visual uh, workflow building, visual, uh, I guess, visualizing all the data that we have. So the idea is that it's Babel, kind of say, we're a programming language, we're just a visual programming language. So it's much easier for you or for a designer to, uh, to build those, uh, those mockups in, in Babel. And so what I would do in that case, I would go to Babel and you have a very quick way to do like a Figma to Babel. So Babel can actually take your Figma design and just import that into your, um, into your app. And, and that's it. And you just took the designs and created all the, um, I guess, objects or elements that involve having an app running. So you have crossed, you've definitely crossed the 50% mark. I think you're at somewhere at 60% or 70% ready to go to market. And really what you need to do right now is build the logic behind the app. So be simple logic maybe it's a dating app and all you need to do right now is like swipe right and swipe left and if someone swipes right then you want to show a different picture so if someone swipes left you show it like you show an x if someone swipes right you show like a check green check mark so that's something you can build in babel all this logic of how you uh, how how the app behaves how uh, how you sign up users, how you sign in users, all that things are kind of like baked into Babel. So right now you're at $250 you have. It took you maybe like a week or two weeks to get the designs in the wireframe. And you have all the elements of your app already loaded into Babel. And the next thing you're probably going to do is take someone, get someone to help you with Babel. And that's going, and they would need to work on the responsiveness and how it looks on mobiles and how it looks on the different, uh, I guess, uh, viewports or the or different devices. Um, so that's going to cost you, I guess, let's say $200 or maybe a bit, probably around $200 per so We're almost $300 in at that point. So you are 250 for the designer, then you're going to pay about, let's say, $200 per page ah, for okay, the okay. Babel developer to fix the responsiveness and the workflows and everything. So... So let's say you have four pages, or we said five pages. So you're at so we're actually hitting the thousand, thousand, thousand two hundred fifty. But that's it. And after you got that work done, you can deploy your app. You can send it to people to sign in. You can give it. You can start marketing your app. You can embed all the Google Analytics, all the, uh, I guess uh, you know tracking and Facebook pixels and all of that. So thousand two. Like $1,250 gets you an app that's usable and probably in less than a month. So, okay, so that's up to the technical part. And then I have something missing. You mentioned, let's say, a dating app. 
for a dating app, which is a social app to work, I do need a starting amount of users. How do you do the acquisition part, lean and mean as well? Or do you say, no, at that point, I just need to figure out how to find the first subscribers myself and they need to bootstrap me or either I will find like uh, exterior investors and then I would do I would pay a very savvy marketer in order to do the acquisition of the first bunch of uh, users so I think if you if you look at the startup game it's a game of risks so what you just did with the development is you dare risk the whole development stage so you can take risks in other parts of the business you could potentially get a VC in which adds an external uh, risk involved because it's not just you controlling the trajectory of this uh, idea anymore but you have compensated for a lot of that risk by de-risking the development stage you could potentially invest in marketing but again you de-risked the whole development uh, stage so you can take more more risk on marketing it's not about not taking any risks at all it's more about and i don't think bootstrapping is the right way like in 100 of the cases it's more about how you can spend the risk you have let's say you have a risk a uh, capacity how you allocate that capacity to the places that are meaningful and not to the places where you just pay someone to do a job that's very linear it either works or doesn't work so uh, if if it's something that you can I guess their risk and, and and get the get the development done quickly then you can definitely take risks in other parts of the of the business could you share a, an example of a previous adventure that you've done with no code or Or an app that you've launched or something that is just on the top of your mind right now and you're trying to develop and how that is going so far yeah so I've got I've got a couple of ideas I have an idea for a partner partner marketing uh, part platform so imagine you're working with Zendesk HubSpot Salesforce as a, as a partner what they want is for you to bring new business to them and what partners want is a lot of you hourly work implementations they are not very aware of how they could be marketing and this can potentially make more out of the marketing than make it then they make out of the work they are actually uh, doing so this is like a place I'm thinking about but it is more complex because you have to get to let's say stakeholders involved in the relationship so let's say HubSpot is buying the platform from me But if their partners are not using it, and I need to make sure their partners are like using it and they are engaged and they know how it works. So if their partners are not going to be using it, then HubSpot is not going to pay me for the next year. So it's a very complex, I guess, uh, model to, to get up and running, but I think there is definitely a need there. Um, I have an idea for a creator marketplace. So people that want to work on personal branding and kind of like creating let's say an unbundling of Fiverr in that area because if you go into Fiverr and you're looking for creators or content creators to, to work with you they can market themselves the same way as someone that is 
building Shopify stores mm. is marketing themselves. So I think there is a lot of room for creating maybe a platform, an unbundled platform of um, creators, Fiverr, the same way Airbnb is a subcategory that existed on Craigslist. So Craigslist, you know Craigslist? Yeah, for sure. So um, Craigslist, for people who don't know, is a very big kind of like billboard in the US. So it has everything on it from uh, rentals to secondhand furniture to sex escorts. So it has everything. And over time, companies started to unbundle uh, Craigslist. So Airbnb took the rentals and uh, someone else took the, like Zillow took the uh, selling of... Uh, they found the niche space. and they doubled down on Exactly, that. exactly. So I think the same thing is going to happen with places like Fiverr and Upwork. There are going to be a lot of, uh, let's say, marketplaces that cater to specific... You think there is, instead of, let's say, Fiverr or Upwork, there would be a dedicated marketplace for UI designers? Exactly. I think there is already. I think it's called 99designs. <laughs> um, it actually lets you get offers from designers and you first see like a sketch and then you decide how much you pay and mm. the pay is like the, the way they build the payment structure is much more catered toward designers because they can bring in elements that are more unique to designers than to um, let's say Shopify sh- store builders so there, there, I think there is a good opportunity in everything that's related to marketplaces and I think if, if we connect it back to let's say no code word for a second so I think it's a good opportunity to reflect on what's a good idea for for a let's say a no code app and what's not so if you wanted to build something I, w- I would say what what's a good idea a good idea is something that wraps a UI around the database so what's Airbnb it's a listing of apartments in a, in in the database of cities it's a database of apartments that are connected to a database of cities that are connected to a database of countries and and they have they, they basically manage a lot of lines in their database and every listing has certain columns or certain properties that uh, they want to show so basically Airbnb is a very from a technical standpoint of let's say engineering Airbnb yeah. for the MVP obviously now they have like tons of traffic they have different challenges related to scale and traffic and, and all that kind of, and getting servers like up and running and optimization blah 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 but getting an, like an Airbnb MVP working is very simple just creating a UI around a database around a, an Excel spreadsheet right so yeah it's not more complex than an Excel spreadsheet so what we do need to pay attention to in the space so I think if you're looking to build your app with a no code and everything that is a database UI around the database or an interface around the database is a, is a good candidate for that. So Airbnbs, marketplaces, are essentially a database of sellers and buyers, right? right? Uh, I don't know what else. Dating app is a database of girls and, and men, right? So all of those are like good candidates for, a, for a something like, uh, like no code. You can't build the operation system of iPhone on Babel, right? You can't yeah. make up. You can't, I, I know, like maybe uh, something like that. Then 
a platform that creates, uh, that generates video. And, and let's say something like Synthesia that generates I think that video just video. like in uh, content marketing or even in, you know what, in um, writing for like non-business purposes, like people who write fiction book, fictional books or people writing theories, they're not, like, they're not inventing from their own imagination. Their own imagination is based on hours, dozens of hours and even hundreds and even thousands of hours of them reading and understanding other, pe other people's um, creations that have been made before. So I think there isn't anything new <laughs> to invent so far, um, but the way that you look at things, which I think is very inspiring, and we could take as listeners so much from it, is finding a database, finding a need in a target audience, and finding a way to cater it, which looks very compelling and easy, such as dating apps. I have this amount of uh, bachelors uh, looking for a mate. I have this uh, uh, amount of bachelorettes uh, looking for a spouse, and I should mix and match them, and I'm doing a, a gamification inside, and then irritation loops, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so I, th I think it's kind of like you, you have to think of... I wouldn't go for a dating app. Like I wouldn't build a dating app right now. Erase the dating app. <laughs> Erase the dating app. No, I think the dating apps are super hard. You need to have like tons of money to like penetrate uh, through the the noise and, and pun intended. <laughs> Keep on. And and get this is what you get for inviting me to your business podcast, Amir. Go on. <laughs> this is what I was hoping to get. I was hoping to get penetrated. Um. So I think dating app are. You need something to change materially in the industry for someone to be able to kind of like break through the dating apps and be able to um, do something, take over Tinder or Bumble or all those apps that already uh, are up and running. So it's going to be very, very difficult to take over the, the crown from them unless there is like a very big shift like we're seeing now, for example, in cloud computing. Microsoft was the like the least interesting player in cloud computing. Nobody would use, I guess, Microsoft Azure for their cloud computing. Everybody would use AWS. AWS. So what Microsoft did, they got a stake in OpenAI and they integrated OpenAI very quickly into their cloud computing. And now you can see the bet was like very successful because Amazon doesn't really have a cloud and an AI or a generative AI capability baked into AWS, and everybody that wants to use OpenAI in an enterprise setting need to go to Azure. So Azure suddenly, from being like a nobody in cloud computing, have started getting some traction from that. So that was a very big shift in the in the let's say in the landscape that allowed Microsoft to gain some traction on cloud computing that if OpenAI wouldn't have been theirs, it would have been very difficult for them to gain traction. So I think 
you have to look through this lens and think, what can I bring over that beyond the technical side? Technical yeah. side is not interesting. It's going to be s more, more and more simple to create. Apps. You'll figure it out along the way. Yeah. So you need, you need to figure out what's, what's the business case. And I think Alex Hormozzi has like this picture of people standing uh, in front of a food truck on the beach. And, and he says like best business model, hungry, a starving crowds, starving crowds and bad hamburgers and bad coffee. And like, like if uh, you have the right placement, they will come no exactly. matter how shitty your hot dog is. And outrageous prices. So I think like what you're willing to make sure before you look into technologies and, and, and everything, you need to figure out if you have someone that's starving to get your solution solution and i think in dating it's not it's not right now what's happening so we kind of we, we drifted a bit to ideas so if i go back to you go to market and how you acquire users for your app uh, i think there are obviously a lot of ways to do that and i don't want to go into you know how you get users because you could it's, it's endless and you could get like a lot of different ideas on how, you, on how you do that. But I do want to speak about something I think we're seeing a lot in Israel, potentially in countries outside of Israel, maybe even in Europe. Should you start with your local market or should you start with, uh, with the US or Europe? With a bigger pond. With a bigger pond and your intended target market. Right, so we wanted to speak about go-to-market and how to get your app uh, how to get an audience uh, for your app and obviously there is a different strategy for for every app and I personally believe in community uh, led uh, products so I think the best thing you could do for your product is uh, create a community figure out the needs from the community and then build a product uh, for that community but obviously there are other ways to uh, to do that you could do cold outreach you could do paid marketing I think a lot of startups that are not very certain on how to move forward, they just start doing paid marketing, and that's not the right way. I would say that as a rule of thumb, you must be able to get organic signups or let's say cold sign up, cold outreach signups or get someone in your uh, funnel before you start pouring the, the gas of the uh, paid marketing because then if, if you are trying to use paid marketing before you have like a fire, then you're just pouring gas on, on something that's, that's not, you're just, it's not working. So, yeah, for sure. So I would definitely say you need to get some, some traction before you start paid ads. And I do think community uh, led is the way uh, forward. I think something that's important to speak about is which market you start with. And I know a lot of uh, people that founder startup and they have like this uh, idea that they want to start work they, their let's say final destination is the US because that's the target market but then at least in Israel it happens they start with an Israeli audience maybe they start maybe in Europe they start with the European audience and then expanding out of that is very difficult and I think the changing moment for me was when I was in living in New York City for a few, I guess a month or so. And you just realize that the, 
just New York City has the same amount of population as Israel. And New York City has a GDP, like an economical GDP, three times bigger than Israel, just New York City. And then you're thinking, okay, so why am I working in Israel? Because I speak Hebrew. So what you, what you are basically saying is that in the U.S., every industry is a blue ocean? I think a lot of industries have more opportunity for, uh, let's say, growing and uh, disrupting them than in Israel. Uh, for that matter, I believe in other countries the situation is the same. And I think the most important thing is that if you build for a, a crowd that's in your country, if you build for an Israeli crowd, the insights are not necessarily transferable to the target market. So if your target market is Singapore, if your target market is China, if the target market is the US, and you start your initial let's say pilot or POC or MVP with the market in Israel, the market in Germany, the market in France, the market in Switzerland, then, you know, different people, it's like different yeah. people, different cultures, maybe it's not the right way to, to build for, for like the culture in the US. You, you, don't, you don't build for the culture in the US probably the same way you build for the culture in Switzerland. So. True. If, if you, I, I really believe that if you want to work with a certain target market, obviously if you want to work with the Israeli market, then go ahead, like, do your pilot here, everything's great. But if you want to work with college students in the US, it doesn't help you, it doesn't help at all that you're working with college students in Israel. It's maybe even misleading you because you're getting insights from a certain culture that aren't really transferable to another culture. I think, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. I see a lot of people that are struggling uh, with, uh, with this. Uh, I think also a lot of tech companies struggle with this and they start selling to the local tech companies. So let's say if you're a tech company in Israel, you would start selling to Monday and to kind of High Bob and... But the list is very short of uh, Israeli potential dream clients that you could have. Yeah, it's tricky because you have enough you could still sell to them, but yeah. again, they don't. It's it's a little better because they are at least in the same you know segment and industry, um, like your target audience in the U.S. And maybe you know if you're selling to the CISO of Monday.com and you're selling to the CISO of uh, ClickUp, it's they are probably going to ask the same questions like business-wise. I still think that you know the there there are cultural differences that make it a very different between Monday and ClickUp. Um, so I see a lot of companies do that. That's, I think, also like uh, maybe something you want to uh, maybe try and avoid if you can. If not, then probably it's better than nothing. But if you are selling like to, if you want to sell to ClickUp and you end up selling to a software house in Israel, then you're probably not doing the right thing. Amazing. All right. So, if I need to summarize it, we've talked today about the importance of being lean and mean when you build your first MVP. We actually talked about what is an MVP other than LeBron James in this amazing season of 2018. I think it was in, with the Miami Heat. 
Uh, we actually talked about uh, catering um, from a database, finding a solution that is very niche into a very big marketplace. We've talked about all of the, let's say, Craigslist conundrum or how you expecting uh, niches inside of uh, Fiverr and Upwork to become an independent kind of platforms. And we've talked about starting in your local market and in the international market. Is there anything that I've missed? Um, no, I think, I think that's, that's a great uh, wrap-up. I would just say that you elaborate about these topics a lot in your own LinkedIn uh, profile, so go check it out. We'll attach a link in the description below. Thank you so much for ThinkUp which are hosting us today in their lovely offices in the center of Tel Aviv. Tamir, it was such a great debut. I think I became like 10x smarter after <laughs> this last 45 minutes. At least I'm a startup smarter. <laughs> startup smarter. Thank you so much.